Computers calculate. Brains comprehend. In 1890, Dr. Herman Hollerith developed the method of storing information on punched cards. By the turn of the century, early key punch machines enabled clerks to transfer numerical information from original documents to punched cards which a machine could read. Large users began asking for a new technology to process large volumes of transactions and to organize and present facts in a form they could use to better manage the business. Enter the computer and a new age. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 117, Time Trek, Paradise or Infogeddon? Paradise or Infogeddon? You choose. Mm-hmm. Because it's all about the evolution of... Data. And data gathering. Mm-hmm. So when did this whole thing start? Well, the origins go back thousands of years in terms of what we did instinctively. Mm-hmm. Right? We gathered with our eyes, with our ears. Sure, the senses, I guess, would be the first information gathering technology. Mm-hmm. What is referred to as human readable data. right. right which has nothing to do with computers or mechanization of any kind. We just right. gathered information with our eyes and ears primarily and our senses and our instincts. Mm-hmm. Right. And really the development of what we now refer to as data mining or data collection really had its roots probably in the last century. Early signs were in the 1800s, mm-hmm. but most people agree that it was probably around the 1920s and 1930s when the modern age of data collection began. And one man who had a vision long before most of us even considered the topic of data collection, we go back to 1926 with Mr. Tesla himself. And we have Mr. Tesla's quote, and we have Mr. Tesla in the studio today. Hello, how are you? Hello, Mr. Tesla. Give me that quote from 1926. Yes, and this is what I said in 1926. I'm going to quote myself. When wireless is perfectly applied, the whole earth will be converted into a huge brain, which in fact it is, all things being particles of a real and rhythmic whole. We shall be able to communicate with one another instantly, irrespective of distance. Not only this, but through television and telephony, we shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though we were face to face, despite intervening distances of thousands of miles. And the instruments through which we shall be able to do this will be amazingly simple compared with our present telephone. A man will be able to carry one in his vest pocket. Amazing. And he was 70 years old when he said that, right? Yeah, 70 years old. He lived for another, I don't know. 17 years. 17 years, yeah. Amazing, amazing. And the interesting thing about Tesla, we should just, a little tidbit, he was born on July 10th, 1856, Mm -hmm. round midnight, during... A storm, (laughs) a lightning storm. A lightning storm. Perfect. How ironic and interesting. 
and mm-hmm. appropriate. Mm-hmm. He was predicting the modern age and during a time when information gathering began to really pick up steam, as mm-hmm. you say. But let's go back before that into the 19th century with this German fellow. His name was Hermann Hollerith. He was an inventor. 1880s. In the U.S., and he used his genius to invent a tabulating machine to help to synthesize the census the data census, right. in the U.S. of that time, which took a long, long time to analyze and figure out because of how it was being gathered. And by the way, the 1880s, that also coincided with the shift from the agrarian to urban right, type right. society. The industrial age really kind of kicking in mm-hmm. and urbanizing the world we live in, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just leap backwards again. Sure. To back to when we transferred from hunter-gatherers to agrarian right. civilizations to urban civilizations. And that whole movement implied the necessity for more information and data gathering. Yes. Because once you're a farmer rather than a hunter, you're sitting in one place. You're gathering your sheep or whatever it is you're farming, you have to account for the numbers of those sheep. And also when you trade, you have to agree on the value of those sheep. So Mm -hmm. you could agree that one sheep equals two goats. Right. So that little bit of data agreed upon by the community allowed commerce to begin to work its magic, let's mm-hmm. say. You were quantifying things. Yeah, the quantification of things And you was were giving important. them value. Sure, so ancient Egyptians uh, etched those numbers on rock, on stone, mm-hmm. to make an accounting of these interactions among the farmers and the business people in that society. And that went on for centuries. Mm-hmm. So all of that came before the physical tabulation machine of uh, Mr. Uh, Hollerith. And then beyond Hollerith, we get to Nikola Tesla in the 20s. And of course, Alan and, Turing. And then Alan Turing in the mm. 30s, who develops the first computer, I guess you'd have to say. Mm, 1936. And the reason it was kind of needed was that information gathering had got to a point where we could gather lots of information, but how did we store it? Not only store it, how did we decipher it? Yeah. So we needed the technology to Mm -hmm. be able to process all this information. Right. And what does that mean when you say process the information? Processing means that you are taking all this information and then you're dissecting it. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to analyze what that information is providing you with. Right. So that technology could compare and contrast and relate pieces of information to each other much more quickly than the human mind could. That's what the computer processor does. It just accelerates and magnifies the ability to process information. Right. Right. So that was critical. And we mustn't forget, too, that Turing created this technology as a kind of a code-breaking... The Enigma machine. ...technology, the Enigma machine during Mm -hmm. wartime. Right. Mm-hmm. Broke the German codes. Yeah. Shortened the war considerably. So commerce and war, two big... Um, driving forces. Driving forces, thank you, of information gathering. Mm-hmm. Right? So here we go into the next phase, which would be, I guess you'd say, the internet. The information age. Right. And the same thing. The internet was born... In the military, yes, correct? 1969. So there's a military again, Mm -hmm. being at an underpinning of this whole movement. And military, directly or indirectly, always connects with economy as well. Right. Those are always the two main elements 
at it least up until now. Seems to be the bottom right, line for right. us, right? And, and technology, you could also state that information is also being utilized that way. It is becoming a weapon as well. It's not just mm. for, for yes. positive purposes. It is being used for the military, for defensive and offensive purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really discussing the pros and cons of all this. Yeah. Now, let's carry on, though. There's another little leap mm. I think we could, and maybe you can talk about this, and that is the leap into what's known as cloud computing. Cloud computing, yes. So that's also to do with information and information storage, especially, right? Yes, with that, also the portability of information. Mm-hmm. You no longer have a fixed location. Right, right, right. Which allows you to access information from literally anywhere in the world that has a connection. Big data. What is big data? Well, big data, again, we're talking about scale here. Yeah. The amount of data. Okay. That uh, we're collecting. It's on a scale that so far exceeds any human capability because now it becomes what they call machine readable information. So the census is a machine readable big data matrix? Yes, because you require processing beyond human capability to gather and break down all the information, right? In time. We mustn't forget this is all about saving time. Yes. Right? Because if you had enough people working on it, but of course... It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter, but it would be very complex trying to organize tens Mm. of thousands of people to bring in information. Yeah. Not only information, because information is one thing. It's also the ability to dissect information and to take it from a variety of sources because information doesn't come from just one place. There's personal data, there's web data, there's there's all kinds of data. Every time you make a transaction, every time you sign a a census, every time you apply for a license, Mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of information. And of course, information is just that information. Now you have to be able to make sense of the information. So what does the information tell you? Right. What differentiates it from regular data is that We're analyzing it before the tools we use to collect, store, and analyze it have had a chance to accommodate the increase in size and complexity. Mm -hmm. So with the latest tools in the market, we no longer have to rely on sampling. Instead, Uh we can process data sets in their entirety Uh and gain a far more complete picture of the world around us. Right, I see. So we don't have to extrapolate from a small sample size. We can take a huge sample size. Exactly. And the larger the sample size, the greater the reliability of the information. Mm -hmm. When you always hear that plus or minus 3% or 5% accuracy, well, the more data you have, the greater the reduction in that percentage. I see. The more reliable the data becomes. Okay. We talk about AI then in this case. Well, with AI, AI is basically predicated on the collection of data. The challenges for AI are not so much data anymore as they are relating them to the human ability to decipher situations that go beyond information. So that's more like interpretation. Interpretation and also applying emotion or other factors that are not based on information. Right. right? So, for example, you have a car that is um, AI-driven. Mm-hmm. The car is driving itself. It comes to a pedestrian walkway and there's children walking and there's someone else coming from the other direction, whatever. There's a situation there where the algorithms or the data information might say, well, hit the child rather than the car coming the other way. Or Mm. it's not able, not yet anyway, not able to make that decision beyond facts where you have the human element yeah. being utilized to assess the situation and say, well, 
really the child's life is much more valuable than this. Well, that's because morality goes beyond data and information. It's something that cannot be broken down. And we should actually really point out that the beginnings of this whole movement towards the modern understanding of data and information gathering mm -hmm. starts in the middle of the 16th century with Copernicus and the scientific method. The Reformation. The scientific revolution, yeah, during the Re Reformation, that really looks at the world as something that can be understood, mm -hmm. number one, and it can only be understood by understanding the constituent parts of the whole. If you understand the parts, you can understand the whole, mm -hmm. right? And when we get to the philosophical side of this whole issue, my argument is that we can never understand the whole from the point of view of the individual data points. Okay. Because you can gather as many data points as you want about another human being, for example, mm -hmm. and still not know them. That's true. You know what I'm saying? Yes, Because I do, yes. of this morality, this non-physical side of consciousness, mm -hmm. which is not information. Consciousness is not information at all. It's a dynamic. It's an energy. It moves through a world of instinct, intuition, right. deep thought, emotion, what have you. But it's not information-centered. Which is probably one of the biggest challenges of AI. Yeah. They can figure out the numerical side of things. The other side, which, as you say, sometimes has no clear definition, or you can even go to the point of describing it as an energy. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. And also what AI is predicated on in terms of its quote-unquote learning mm -hmm. is that it will take, as far as I understand, it will take the data that it has and it will compare it to another experience it has and the data that is presented there right. and will make decisions different decisions perhaps, based upon this evolution of data, mm -hmm. whereas the human being doesn't do that. We are not computers taking the data sets, comparing them, and then deciding differently next time. We are creatures of habit, yes. we're creatures of comfort. R routine. We go where our pleasure principle directs mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. We go where the spirit, quote unquote, might direct us if we are religious, for example. Mm -hmm. So I don't have much faith that AI will be anything real anytime soon. Now that's just me. Okay. I think that the applications right now are much more uh, practical. Yeah. Which is in the running of things, in the numbering of things, productivity, electrical systems, uh, water systems, systems in general that run our daily lives. That's where the focus is being centered. The other part's a lot more challenging. Mm -hmm. But they're mm -hmm. saying that eventually they can resolve that too. And a lot of it from sheer amounts of data, which as Harari expresses, to the point where It'll know more about you than you do about yourself. Yeah, that's a very interesting statement. And when I read that in his book, his mm. books, plural, it's on the one hand very alarming. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I thought, no, it's not true at all. They know certain elements of your habitual actions. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they know you better than you know yourself. knowledge is not the same as information. It's not, right. Right? Mm -hmm. We were talking about that earlier today. Although the kind of preemptive position of knowledge is information. Meaning, Informa what? meaning that you require information before you can 
access the knowledge part of it. And that's an assumption that, I, again, I would, right. I, would, um, dis- I would argue with. Right. Because how many times has a person gone into a room mm-hmm. and without any external clues, mm-hmm. feel inside them there's something wrong here or there's danger here. Right. You know, little, the little spidey senses go up. Primal you know, instincts. Primal instincts, yeah. which, which has nothing to do with facts and information, but more to do with a kind of a direct knowledge that one can have in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Not always. but. However, if you think about it, in practical applications, you are, in a way, you are also utilizing visual audio information. Sure. Which is affecting that particular energy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the brain does synthesize all right. of these things that right. the senses uh, give it to. So the brain is a kind of computer, for sure, mm-hmm. no question about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And it's a very good computer. Um, so what they're saying, even in AI, if, if you can get enough sampling on a large enough scale of that, eventually they're saying they could develop it that that sense will be there. And that's my problem. It's not volume. Yeah, yeah, right. Human beings are not made out of the volume of human stuffs that we we can pack into our bodies, et cetera. Humans are humans uh, for a very different reason, based upon a different kind of dynamic than simply X number of data points that come together to be a human being. Mm -hmm. We are not that. We are more than that, Mm -hmm. for sure. Right. So, you know, but we're in facing into a world that kind of tells us that we are data points, a world that Harari says knows us better than we do ourselves mm-hmm. based upon our data points, essentially, right. which my, I had a spiritual teacher one time who basically said human beings are being turned into data. Mm-hmm. And that is what's happened. Mm-hmm. Right. For big companies, for governments, sure. we are data. Box, box. Will computers eventually become more intelligent than we are? Will they even rule the world in the near future? In America, this already happened a few years ago. California was run by a Terminator T-800 for eight years. (laughs) And the systems are getting better and better. Walmart is able to diagnose pregnancy in young women just by analyzing their buying habits. And they can do it long before the women themselves are aware of their condition. I found this absolutely scary. Therefore, I decided to fight back. Sometimes when I do my shopping, I buy exactly what a pregnant woman would buy. (laughs) Plus a bottle of vodka and some condoms. And then I imagine the database experts staring at my shopping list, completely confused. And here you can see the fundamental deficit of algorithms. Data are not capable to analyze themselves. If you ask a computer about the connection between a music tape and a pen, it won't have any idea what you are talking about. Agreed, every person under 20 will neither, but at least for different reasons. Recognizing a good friend from behind who is 60 meters away is very easy for us. For a computer, it's still very difficult because it doesn't have a good friend. (laughs) But it can multiply 26 by 78 faster than lightning. A person who can do that doesn't have a good friend either. Box, box. There is something interesting, though, about data that piqued my interest anyway, and that is not just the mechanical side of data collection, but the psyche of the human condition that's involved in this. So... 
As an example, yeah. most people, when they're in a social, familial situation, and there's a discussion going on and they're asked questions, bantering back and forth with ideas, items of the day, politics, whatever. Yeah. It's very, very rare that people are 100% honest in their description, especially when they're talking about themselves. And as an example, you know, someone asks you a basic question, you know, how many times do you brush your teeth per week? Yeah. Now, in that question, the receiver of the question is automatically going, well, there's people present here when I respond. And if I say three times a week, it's going to sound like I'm a little bit derelict <laughs> in the uh, maintenance department. And if I say 12, yeah. that way they know that I brush my teeth at least once a day, sometimes twice, sometimes three yeah, times. Makes right? me look good. Makes you look good and it makes you more comfortable. Now, people in general, they tell these type of little lies all the time and either to boost themselves or sure. to make a situation look rosy or whatever, right? Right. That does not happen according to the information that is available. That does not happen when people are interviewed or asked questions anonymously. Yeah. Anonymously, they tend to be more honest, right? Because there's no one present. So if you're doing a questionnaire online, the likelihood of you being more honest is extremely but high. But you know what that implies? Right. The information gathering gods would rather we be invisible and not present and not public. Well, it goes to what you said before. We're becoming objects of data. We're becoming objects of data. They prefer that right. we're just neutral units of information um, sources. Well, for people, though, in production or selling products and so on, that's really what they want. They, yeah. they want to know what you are likely to do. Right. So if, if they know the truth about you, if they know that you're really brushing your teeth only three times a week versus mm -hmm. 12, yep. then they can create a product or a service that aligns itself with that particular knowledge. Sure. So right? coercion and temptation and all those juicy things that, that human beings are prey to Absolutely. Are, are wrapped up in the way the information is gathered, interpreted, and given back to us in a mm -hmm. way, right? Mm -hmm. So here's another sort of angle on this, and this is kind of a strange one. I'm here to argue okay. that data is death, Okay. D-E-A-T-H. The data is a kind of dead energy. It's a dead thing. Meaning? So, for example, you could take me, my body, okay. alive, and you could take my heart out of my body. You could pull my lungs out of my body. You could dissect my body all you like. But you'll never actually find a living being there. Mm -hmm. You'll find pieces of body. Components. Components of body, which in and of themselves are dead things. Right. Okay. So information gathered from anywhere, from any living experience, information taken from that experience on the one hand is actually just dead matter. It's dead material. See where you're okay. coming from, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and on the other hand, the act of taking that information from a living experience or a living person or being is a form, I would argue, yeah. of thievery. You're actually stealing aspects of someone's life, turning it into dead matter that then gets analyzed in a way. It's a kind of a stealing. Now, it's funny that you should say that because on the practical side of that, there are actually arguments being made right now with all this data collection yeah. that will argue that very point, that all these institutions or entities that are collecting our data mm -hmm. on a regular basis, whether we buy something on the internet, whether we reply to a poll, whatever it is, 
they're making money off of our information, yep. which they are getting without our permission. Correct. So there are actual legal entities that are beginning to argue whether or not they have that right yeah. and whether or not they should be paying us for giving yeah, them this information. Yeah, if you're going to steal my information, I expect to compensation right. for that. You know, right, that's, right. that's the attitude, right? Right, right. <laughs> but here's the thing. A living experience where data is stolen from. What's a living experience? A living experience is a combination of energy, mm -hmm. consciousness, and awareness or presence. Right. Okay. Data has none of that. Even though lately people are talking about the energy that information uses in its processing around the planet is greater than the energy used through uh, oil and other well, kinds of not, things, right? Well, not that so much. What they're saying is that the value mm -hmm. of data yeah. is now greater than the value of oil in, in monetary terms. Ah, I see. Right? I see. Be because the access to all this information enables so many different companies and corporations to profit. Yeah, but I also read that it takes more energy ah. to do data mining and all of these things, actual energy, energy. Yes, yes, in the actual collection. Computerization, collection, all right. that stuff is using more energy than it takes to draw the oil out of the yes, earth. Yes, I don't I, remember the exact number, but I think, in fact, they were saying that in 20 or 30 years, mm -hmm. the energy required just for the collection directly or indirectly of data will be the equivalent of the entire amount of energy that Canada uses in one year. Boodles and boodles and gigabytes of information really just choke the atmosphere, not even allowing room for imagination. Which probably would explain a lot of the stifling and stress that people are experiencing without even knowing why. Yeah, that underlying anxiety yeah. that's with us yeah. day to day. We don't quite understand why, mm -hmm. but it, it is an atmosphere we live in. We've taken the life out of living. Yeah, we have. And we've replaced that life with internet sites full of information and data and right. an ability to surf the planet and lock into a, a computer screen for hours and hours and hours every day, mm -hmm. getting lost in the surfing ocean and the churning ocean of information. Yeah. And then what does that imply? It implies that people cannot agree on anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And as we see, that's happening more and more. Well, the agreement is also based on the fact that you've relinquished a lot of that to the entities that are telling you what's important, what's not, and you become one of the herd. Sure. You just spout other people's ideas. And which goes to also the question of information and knowledge. Yeah. Spewing repetitive information that you hear without understanding it is information. Mm -hmm. Knowledge requires a lot more input, requires a lot more experience. Yeah. And people can have their own sets of data and information that they rely upon, which are different from the other person's set of data and information. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to actually bridge the gap, you see, because the data and information is upfront. Right. And is pushed forward as ammunition mm -hmm. and used mm -hmm. as a weapon in a way. Well, Sorry. information, like anything else, it's how it's used. You can weaponize information. It's happening. Well, sure, it's happening. Look at uh, Trump's uh, presidency and the, mm -hmm. the internet interference in that election mm -hmm. by presenting false ideas and fake videos and all this shit that pollutes the whole idea of democracy. Right, but that can happen on both sides. It's not happening just on one side. Yeah. 
Right? It's sure, all parties. It's oh, left and right. It's oh, not, sure. in many ways, it's relinquishing our ability to think outside the information that is being fed to us. And there are many people that use the computer that aren't aware of the fact that every time they do something, that their habits are actually being recorded. Yep. You'll find more and more, if you haven't seen it already, when you're doing something, suddenly, and it doesn't matter what page you go to, suddenly there's an ad for something that you bought the day before. Right. Or right. a product that's similar. How could they possibly know that? Or mm-hmm. or you go on to the, uh, your computer, you open Google, it doesn't open just anywhere, it opens right at your location. Yeah. Right? It's all, all these things that are happening and which... When you're in control of yourself and your life, those things can be very positive and very convenient, right? Well, yeah, but but we're not in control of the amount of information that is quote-unquote stolen from us every day in our innocent surfing around to search for a pair of uh, boots. Right, except that I, I no longer see it as what you describe as some kind of an innocent thing because... I think you have to really have your head buried in the sand nowadays if you're not aware of some of these things. No, I get that. But in order to be aware of it and act upon it, you'd have to close this computer down more than it's open. And society demands that we keep our head locked in this computer through our work, through our play, through all kinds of means. You're shunted to the edges of society if you're not hooked in to this machine in the internet, especially. So there's no way to not be part of the system unless you become a hermit. That's the problem, too. I agree with that. However, again, we always come back to the same point on this, no matter what podcast we have. I have a different view of that in the sense that, yes, everything you're saying is true. However, ultimately, you still can make certain decisions. And this whole discussion that we're having, this philosophical view as well as practical view of information, comes down to that. How much of what you do every day or every week or every month or every year are you going to relinquish? At what point do you decide, even an innocent act of going onto the computer looking for a pair of shoes? If you simply go on the internet and look for a pair of shoes... Not too much is going to happen. The problem is that people are addicted to the entire system. It's not just a pair of shoes. They go looking for a pair of shoes, but they're easily distracted by 16 other things that are on the page, which they automatically go to. Very few people actually go to a computer to perform one function and perform only one function. Right. That's true. That's true. So it's our propensity for being distracted, right? Not only for being distracted, but for looking to outside things to help us with our internal things. Yeah, that's very good. I agree. I agree. And one of the things that people can do, and many do do, to mitigate this noisy world of information Mm -hmm. is to meditate, for example. Yes. To go out running or something physical like that. Anything to just calm the monkey mind and find a space that of quiet and calm where the inner life can actually have its own space mm-hmm. to breathe. Time and space is just a basic human requirement for your health. Terence McKenna, back in the 1990s, mm. talked about the speed of change. Right that we are witnessing. And the fact that that 
speed of change is accelerating exponentially, and that acceleration is speeding up to the point where time is being compressed with so much material and mm -hmm. data and information that the human brain and mind will not be able to withstand the intensity of it, mm -hmm. and will have to kind of explode, if you like, into what he calls kind of a hyper-real state which will be another evolution in human consciousness that will have to deal with mm -hmm. this explosion in the world that we live in. You just said something that created an immediate image in my mind. And yeah. I was thinking of it in these terms, you were talking about this rapid advancement. So the image that I had in my mind for a moment was we all drive on highways and so on. And, and you and I have lived in Toronto or the GTA for our entire lives. Yeah. And we've seen these tremendous changes on the highways. Sure. It used to be a much more relaxed. 60 miles per hour was top end. Okay, so we'll flip yeah. it over to kilometers because that's where we're in now. But yeah. the highway to me is representative of the way people live. Sure. So you can get into the left lane and chase each other for another meter, doing 130, 140. Mm -hmm. Or you can just step aside to the right lane, let them pass you at will, do your 100, 110, and just relax. Right. Now, I find it interesting because, again, speaking for myself, I do that. I generally cruise at 1, 110, whatever, because I figure five minutes more, five minutes less isn't going to make that much of a difference. And easier on the car, it's easier on me, and so on, right? Yeah. But very few people do that. At least that's what I see. Yeah. And that's how I think of this technology, this data-driven system that we're in. That's how I think of it as well. Yeah. You're not going to change that. That's not going to cease. No, the data highway will not reduce its speed limit. I can put it that way. <laughs> right. So again, you, you have ha to reduce your speed. Yeah, limit. you have to right. internally, you have to say, am I going to be part of this or not? And what I'm suggesting is, is that it may only begin with a handful of people. But as more and more people do that, and even if more and more people don't do that, let's say nothing changes, at least you have some peace. Mm -hmm. Take your peace as you find it. Am I being too simplistic? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. Simplistic, idealistic, that's the beginnings of big things, right? Uh, every progressive, quote-unquote, movement begins with simple ideas, idealistic thoughts that people go, yeah, I, I see well, the value well, if, in that. Well, well what's the right? option? If you're overwhelmed, yeah. what's the option? Yeah. What is the option? I'm asking the question. I'm actually asking you the question. The option is to either drown, right. swim, right. like learn how to swim effectively in the ocean, right. or turn away from it completely. And many of us do a bit of each. Right. I've learned a bit of how to negotiate this world. I'm 68. Right. Like you, I straddled the analog to the digital, digital. Mm -hmm. transformation, and I've learned some basic things about computing technology. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I don't go too deeply into it because the brain that I've got is not really adept at it at this point. So I do a bit of it. And then at other times I turn away and into my writing, which is a whole different world. And it's not informational. It's intuitive. It's mm -hmm. instinctive. It's also right? enjoyable, right? And very enjoyable. It of allows course. you to recharge your batteries. And on that note, yeah. I was thinking about language. Mm -hmm. And when I have an experience and I share that experience with you in the form of words, that's a form of information sharing. 
Yes. Using the medium of words, mm-hmm. right? And even there, the words themselves are dead things. They really are. But there's something about our language that if you work those words together in certain magical combinations, yes. there's a much more direct transference of the experience. It's a more living thing. Right. The energy flows between people. It can be a living thing. Mm-hmm. More and more people are becoming saturated and more and more people are seeking that face-to-face. Sure. So on that note, talk to us about what we're doing. Does it make sense to you? Is it ridiculous? What would you like us to talk about? Yeah, Uh, we'd be interested in what you're interested in and fire us off some ideas. It can be as wild as you like. We'll we'll bite on it. I love to bite on strange ideas. So send that stuff uh, through our website. We have an audio comment uh, button. You can mm -hmm. just hit that button and record yourself and we'll get it. And also equally, what you don't like. Yeah. Sure. That's even more valuable in a way than the other. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. Ciao, Peter. Ciao, Harry. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. 